Now, True Wealth, presented by Little John Financial Services. Here are David Little John and Katie Shook with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, all right. Welcome to the True Wealth Show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Dave Little John, in studio with me is Katie Shook. So I just want to say, a lot of times before we start the show, I'm usually giggling because David tells some weird dad joke or something like just says a comment that gets me hysterically laughing right as the microphones go hot and then i seem like i'm on helium our, or something. i'm telling you our listeners can hear the smile in your voice <laughs> they should be the able key. to there's a smile <laughs> in your voice it's why half the time in studio i stand i not I all the time but like you know if the topic is more uh i don't know like you know studious or something i'll i'll sit more but uh Today we're not we're going to cover fun stuff today. Greatest Tuesday you've had all week. Don't forget, right? Right. Glad you're here, and uh, you know, start your cassette tape now if you're from the '90s, oh and you can gosh. record this. Otherwise, we'll podcast it and you can catch it tomorrow. Hey, I miss mixtapes. Okay, <laughs> I just miss them. Yes, and Molly Ringwald, of course. So, she's awesome. What are you talking about? She's still awesome. She's still awesome. So, <laughs> as we. Are looking out to know today. It's slushing outside a little bit. It's kind of interesting. And it's snowing in a lot of parts of Oregon. Well, I know our branch in Salem. Uh, we actually had we, we sent shut folks it down early because it was snowing hard enough that we said, you know, let's get you home in one piece, and we'll just roll the phone system over and take care of business from here in the banana belt of Roseburg. You know what's nice though is uh, financial in the financial industry. I know. Open up the windows. I want to see if it actually starts snowing. Um, I know I get all excited looking out windows. It's so funny. But in the financial industry, we are forced by regulators to have a contingency plan, right? It's a disaster plan or whatever you want to well, call so it. So we but... have several. So there's the disaster recovery plan right. is really what you're talking about. Or they also call it, uh, the disaster recovery plan is different than a business continuity plan. Right. Okay? So there are two but we different have both. things. So disaster recovery, we've actually tested a few times now. In <laughs> yes, the last few years, we've had, now we had the- Snowmageddon. Snowmageddon, and then we've had the COVID fires. test. Uh, we've had, well, fires didn't really shut us down, right? That wasn't the issue. Uh, mm, but we but, had, like, well, our office in Salem, I think, shut down when the ash and the, like, there was a day that when the fires were bad, they were kind of close. Hmm. I mean, we've had to test things. Okay, well, nevertheless- God is testing our plan. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And and I, I kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, you know, we- and I said, this is the, the royal we when I used to have a mouse in my pocket. Uh, when Little John Financial started, it was September of 2010 that we started you know, getting all the licenses and incorporating and so forth. And then in December of 2010 was like, go live, licenses active with the state of Oregon and so forth. And away we go. And right out of the gate, everything was cloud-based back in 2010. So... That was when people were still hosting their own servers and there right. was a lot of stuff that was still internal. And the idea was, listen, uh, because I was a sole operator, no team at that point, hence the joke about we, was that I was doing most every, well, I was doing all the jobs, right? right? Yep. And now when you only have, you know, five clients or something, you can do that. But then if you have 50 clients, it gets harder. And then if you have 200 five, clients, yeah. you're like, and we're we're going to need some help. So I, I built Little John as a way to, it was is built so that I could, I could go anywhere and still conduct business. Right. And, and Which so that you have. was the You have conducted it from the beach of Hawaii, beaches of Hawaii. Yes. And from your motorhome. 
Yes. And yeah, gallivanting across the country. Right. I think I've been in just about every time zone in the country uh, except for Alaska. Right. I think because Alaska is not Hawaiian time, I think, depending on where you are. I'm not positive. But and, it's way uh, up there. and, and also <laughs> if it have conducted business in multiple countries. Right. Right. So I've been in both you know Mexico and Canada and the United States. And uh, so it, the systems are well validated at this point. Things work really well. And it's not just me. Other team members have been able to do the same thing. Right. And that's great because that's the business continuity part, right? The right. disaster. I'm sorry. That's the disaster recovery. Business continuity is what happens if I get hit by a bus. Right. Right. And so there is actually a chain of custody for who steps in and who fills the roles and everybody on the team is cross trained. And I think that this is something that we should when, when you think about this is the equivalent of you know disaster plans are relevant because every one of us should have this. Right. Right. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about today, uh, we'll, we'll get to some other market topics because they're really interesting, but financial hygiene. Okay, so the, the topic of the day is what is good financial hygiene? Okay. I feel like we've gone over this before, but is it something that we just need to rinse and repeat because people need to hear it again? Well, yeah, and we're not going to dwell on this and make a whole program out of it. I'm going to remind you, though, that there are things that are big blocks that every person should be doing in their life, right? And financial hygiene covers all of these, and it all happens in these simple stages. Right? Okay. And it, you can call them baby steps or whatever you want, but the, the first financial hygiene is the emergency fund, right? Right. And the emergency fund is really important for any successful investment plan. Okay, you can't you can't be a successful investor without some kind of emergency capacity. Because you don't want to rob your investments if you get a flat tire. Exactly. Because what an emergency does if you don't have reserve capital is it forces you to liquidate your investments before intended. Right. Okay. And that puts you at significant risk if the markets happen to be down when it occurs. A forced liquidation at all time highs is less painful. But a forced liquidation at anything but all-time highs is less ideal. Right. Well, and and depending on your time horizon, I mean, I've always said my age on the air, and I don't have a problem with that. But, you know, knowing I'm going to work for another 25 years, unplugging something now and losing the ability to have it work for me for the next 25 years is extremely painful. Very significant. So, so I don't want to do that. And Nor do I. Nor do I. So as you think about the first step in hygiene – it's the emergency fund, right? Now, if you have, if you're worth more dead than alive, okay. that's not your problem, right? But if you owe more than you own, there's that's a, a problem. problem. Yeah. Okay? So when you have a negative net worth, now with the exception of a handful of things that I'm going to give you some leeway on, right? One of them is your home. If you're purchasing a home and you haven't handicapped yourself, what do I mean by that, by the way, Katie? Is that like the home, what is it, the home rich but cash poor? Yes. Like where you bought too much home, like more than you can afford. Yes. So instead of being within normal budget reasons, you're spending way more on your budget on your home than you should be. Right. If you're spending more than 30% of your income on your home, there's a good chance that you have your, your house. It's one of two things, right? Either your house costs too much or your job doesn't pay you enough. Or both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could be both. And, and this is not... It's a statement that should be overlooked because remember the magic solution if your job doesn't pay you enough is to get a job that pays you better. It's not to say, dear government, 
fix minimum wage because all that does is dislocate the system and it revalues the dollars that are paying for labor. It doesn't actually make you worth more. What it's saying is let's change an input variable in the financial balance beam. Right. And then everything's going to get all wobbly for a little while and then it will rebalance and guess what? Your purchasing power will erode. So I saw I saw there was a um like a meme or like a little article or something about that and it kind of said the same thing. It said, you know, people are always arguing for higher minimum wage, but you know, you have to be careful because there's wage tax classes. Right. And sometimes when you start to earn more, you bump up in taxes. And so you inadvertently like kind of cause yourself to have less. Well, there's a number but not of on purpose. at play here. It's not so it's not a wage class. I think I think what you're talking about is the tax. Tiers, Ta- the, right? Yeah, like the tax so tier. So like if a, you earn over so much, right, then you right. go up to the next tax tier. So, so you could we have this graduated tax scale where the more you make, the higher your tax bracket goes. And if you get a raise and it bumps most of your money into a higher tax bracket, you'll still keep more money generally, but maybe not as much as you think, because here's what happens in our current system. If you're paying for health insurance on an exchange and you get more money, then you will potentially lose the supplement for your health insurance. So net net, I made more money and it all went into my health insurance. I don't have any new discretionary income. But going back to what you were saying, like if you raised, um, income right like if you raise the like now you're talking one-on-one the example you just gave was a one-on-one but if everybody got a bump up like if minimum wage raise raise the minimum wage to by 30 percent then all ultimately stamps and milk and everything else is going to raise by by 30 percent so it's not that you're able to afford more but if you end up paying more taxes like if you got bumped up a tax bracket a little bit then the amount that you take home could actually be less um Less income, discretionary income, thank you. Less discretionary income to spend on the things that you normally would have bought with your other income. Mm -hmm. So it's like people think, oh, well, I just make more. That means I get more to spend. Well, not necessarily. No. Not Not if the cost of the widget goes up. Yeah, there's this lovely phrase that it's not in finance, but it's uh, one that uh, somebody else shared with me. In fact, he's been a guest on our show before, Mr. Seth Bueckley, credit where due. And he used the phrase cam over. Cam over. Cam over is the idea that it you have to earn a certain amount of money before you have enough discretionary that you start making additional progress. The the wild thing is if you look at how uh, government supplements turn off and on, mm-hmm. uh, what happens is if you make below a certain threshold, you start getting supplements that kind of expand your lifestyle right. to match a higher income and then when you make that higher income you lose all the supplements so you don't your lifestyle doesn't change much from when you were supplemented right you just and don't have the supplements when you start to make more certain things cost more so you don't really get ahead until you make enough more that you kind of break out of that environment and then you start to have discretion right so like the in-between stuff is kind of sticky right and so uh, again, my, my brother Scott has been on the program before. Right. He's a health insurance expert and he's talked insurance about, in general. Right. He's a, he's an insurance expert, but we were talking specifically about Obamacare and the way it was sort of structured. And he's made the case that, uh, I've heard figures anywhere between 80,000 and 120,000, depending on the number of family members you have, where your income is, has very little discernible difference from somebody that's making say 50 or 60,000. You Which can is have crazy almost double the money thinking... and, and you don't really get double the lifestyle. Yeah, you don't have double the discretion. So it's 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 not until you have significantly more than that that you start to break out and have 
discretion, if you maintain your lifestyle expenses at the lower income level, then you can have extra. Right. But what most Americans do is they expand their lifestyle, and before you know it, they just have an expensive life, and they still have no extra discretionary income. True. You know, they got the bigger house and the fancier car and everything, and look what happened. Yeah. Okay, so you can't, your, your financial hygiene involves, one, having an emergency fund. You can't get there if you spend more money than you make. Right. Okay, so these I know these sound like duh, but if you already know this and you're dealing with some knucklehead, then just play this podcast for them. And then you could tell them, <laughs> look, you need an emergency fund so that it doesn't break everything in your life. Every time something goes wrong, you go into debt to fix it. So David, how much people how much should somebody have in their emergency fund? Okay, good question. Let's answer it, but let's take our break. Okay. And then we'll catch it on the flip side. So you'll remind me when we come back I how will. much should you have in your emergency fund. But first this obscene profit break. Stick around, we'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn and Katie Shook. Yeah, True Wealth on News Radio 1240. KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn here in studio with Katie Shook. I like the way you have to say it. That's us giving like those uh, audible clues of like, say your name, Katie. <laughs> Stand in it. Because it's always like, hey, it's David and Katie. And it's like, well, shouldn't I just let Katie say Katie? I don't know. Should you? Yes. Okay. Glad we had this talk. All right. So why was the question is, how much should you have in your emergency fund? Right. Okay. So if you're just joining us, you missed all the fun. Check it out on the podcast. It'll be available tomorrow. Well, it won't be available tomorrow because of technical difficulties, but you can get it on 541radio.com <laughs> if you need to. Otherwise, check back eventually. next week, and it'll be posted on our webpage at littlejohnfs.com. So the emergency fund question is, it's not a trick question, but the answer is not a, it is this answer. Here it's is, not a set dollar here amount. Here is the answer. It is three to six months of your life support costs. So, ooh, I like that you used life support. Okay, yeah. So, and why life support, Katie? I mean, this is actually in your wheelhouse. No, this is totally in my wheelhouse. That's why I was waiting to see. So, the three to six months. I'm gonna. Can I address that first? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so three to six months is depending on whether you are a one income or two income household, right? And so we're not talking about being married or anything else. It's just one income or two income. Yeah, or income sources, right? So right. diversification of your income sources. Maybe you're one income and rental properties or something like that. Right. But well, yes. so I would say if you have multiple, if you have more than one source of income, how about that, right? So if you are a single person and your sole income is you going to work every day, right? Then you really should have about six months worth of life support. I love that you use that term. Um, six months worth of life support in your savings account because if you need to go look for another job, it may take a while to find another job. So this is helping to pay your mortgage or your rent, give you groceries, buy you gas, do whatever you need to do. But life support is not like taking... Life support is not going out to dinner. Life support is not like yeah, the fun this is package. beans and rice and it's being right. really, really... Cons this know, is like paying your base bills, right? Paying yeah. the base minimums on things to yeah. make sure that you make it through your the storm. Your nose is above water, but not much else. <laughs> Fair enough. But the three to six months, if you're a two income household and one income goes down, 
then it's much easier. Because yeah, you still have one income supplementing. So you right. have less income, but you don't have zero income. income. Right. So you don't need necessarily as long. And this is, it's not that there's a right or wrong to it. No, I, I mean, mean, if you, even if you're a double income household, you can have six months. There's nothing yes, wrong with it. Yes. But like the bare minimum is three. Now, I have a trick question for you. Ask away. Okay. For somebody that is retired, do yes. they need an emergency fund? Ooh, because you're not replacing your income. Aha. Uh -huh. So here's the thing. Aha. Uh Aha. -huh. Uh -huh. I would. I love that movie. Uh, isn't that Barbershop? Uh, <laughs> it is. It's the end of Barbershop. That and it was in Coming to America. Yes. Uh, same. Eddie Murphy. Gotta yes. love him. All right. Uh, so if you're retired, no, you don't need an emergency fund. But having a savings account that is for emergencies is not a bad idea. All right. So here's what I say for retirement. What you need is a pool of liquidity. Ooh. Okay. That was now, a fancy schmancy word. It's a fancy schmancy term. What it means is you need some cash stash somewhere. Okay. Have I like some, the cash stash better. Have some <laughs> cash stash that says, and here's why you don't want to force sell things when you are at a bad time. It's the same rule as before, right? Financial hygiene says, I need my investments to be investments. And so I need to make sure that I have something I can access that will not penalize me if I access it. So here's now, it can be in a retirement plan. You can just have some of your, because remember, you have a whole bunch of stuff in there. Right. Some of it just needs to be relatively easy to get to without a lot of risk so that it buys you time to let your other riskier investments ride through a storm. Right. Well, in the, in the cash dash, I like that word, cash dash. Um, should be for things like, you know, um, I got a flat tire, I need to replace the tires, or, you know, I need to replace my car. Sometimes that happens. You just mm -hmm. wear them out. Um, a good one happened a few years ago, now that we're going into snow, possibly today here in Roseburg, um, Snowmageddon. There were a lot of our clients that had downed trees on their property that had True. to pay to have them removed. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever hired a tree removal service. I know you have. But they usually don't start with two zeros. It usually starts with three. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've spent some money on tree removal. Yeah, because it's usually not just, oh, I have this little tiny tree. It's like, oh, I have this massive tree that's 30 years old that yeah. fell in my property. Yeah. Oh, we had a bunch of trees. <laughs> Didn't you have like seven? Card. You had a ton. So we did not have trees go down, but we did have, uh, we got a new neighbor and the when we moved into our home, there was like a big hedge of Leland Cypress, and they are big bushy trees. And the neighbor trimmed the side that had grown onto their property, and it was within their right to do so. And right. I did not say they shouldn't. You know, I mean, I, so that's not my quarrel. But what it did do was it sort of made, oh, made the trees the tree a little lopsided. less balanced. And so what we did is we sort of topped them and shaped them to bring them back into alignment and bush out a little bit more. And so we just shaped everything. But it was like, you know. 15 of them, something like that. It was a bunch of them. Right. So, uh, and by the way, I'm not knocking anybody in that industry. They work hard. I'm just oh, saying. Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, it was totally legit. It's, you know, and all the equipment and overhead and the personnel and what they did, and they were great, but it, it costs money. It does. So, that was kind of my point is, you know, usually when they're emergency expenses, they, <laughs> a lot of times they don't have two zeros, they have three. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So anyway, th there's the reason that you have your emergency fund. So in the, in the hygiene list for everybody out there, first, what do we say? You got to have an emergency fund. You can't do that if you spend more than you make. Right. And uh, with the exception of your home and to a lesser degree, your car, uh, because people buy too much car all the time. Oh, all right? the time. You know, I feel like they buy more car than so, they do home. And, and I kind of, these are really swaggy estimates here, but about 28% of your income on a home 
28 to 30%, and your vehicle should be somewhere between 10 and 15%. If it's a lot more than that, then what you're doing is you're over committing to those assets so much that you're not gonna be able to afford all of the other things that you need to do in life, including paying taxes and eating and developing a nest egg for the future. Right. So you just kind of have to realize that if your base operating expenses between home and car exceed 45% of your income, there's nothing left. That's crazy though. You think about it. Half of almost half of your income goes to your vehicle and your home. Right. And so people scale their lifestyle wrong all the time. To impress all people that don't time. care. All right. So <laughs> All right. So number 1 was emergency fund. What was another one? Well, it was spend less than you make. Okay. Number 2. Okay. And then it is uh, don't don't carry debt, right? And okay. then it is pay yourself first. Okay. And these are all baby step concepts. If you listen to Dave Ramsey or anything like that, he's going to say, hey, you know, first debt snow, well, $1,000, not a real emergency fund. That's your stash cat, your cash stash, literally, right? That's the shoot, I have a flat tire. Well, I, I need to find that, it from somewhere. That keeps you from okay. putting it back on a credit card as you're trying to pay off yeah. debt. So the idea is you do that because you need to have a victory fast and you can do that. And then you start to pay off smallest to largest all of your debts. And then you start putting 15% of your income in retirement plans, and then you want to well, pay off Well, it's the house. emergency fund. The emergency it's, fund, yeah, you're right. And the then the retirement plan. Three. Then 15% in retirement plans. Then it is pay off your house early. And then the rest of it's about building wealth and giving and so forth. Right. And that's where mostly we come into the picture is right about the time you're putting 15% of your income into retirement plans. That's where we want to step in and say, good, let's develop a real plan for how will you get this house paid off early? How will you uh, start to grow and build wealth? How will you be strategic about avoiding taxes legally where you can? Right. How are you going to invest according to your risk parameters and time horizon? Like All of those questions that they'd never get answered on the Dave Ramsey show. Right. And then we can talk about retiring early. Or working yep. for a playcheck instead of a paycheck. Right, and just financial independence. There's a fun one now that we're we're playing with the concept of the wealth snowball. There's a debt snowball. There's also I a wealth like snowball. I like the wealth snowball. Okay, so you're going to have to explain what that is. Yeah, I probably will. Uh, and and then we we got so we'll, let's talk a little bit about the wealth snowball, and then um, we will. I've uh, got a couple other things that we're going to we're talk about today. Like people are asking me about Bitcoin again, so I want to I want to refresh you on that. But let's let's do the wealth snowball, okay? Okay. So the the wealth snowball just like so think about the way the debt snowball works. Right. The debt snowball is oh buddy, I got all these credit cards which are unsecured debt. Those are the bad loans, right? right. Because you are the collateral. Right. So we don't want that. Okay. So you're paying all of those off smallest to largest. Is that the most efficient way to do it? Not necessarily. No, not at all, typically. it's. I mean, it may, by some freak happenstance, work out. But usually... Is that the most emotionally satisfying? Probably. Well, that's <laughs> why. What happens is you should be paying off the highest interest rate debt first. That's the mechanically most efficient way. Right. However, people quit. Right. Well, if, you if can't your biggest victory, debt is the highest interest rate, then yeah, it just it sometimes it feels like you're never going to get there. Right, and you can't get any wins. Now, I'm not going to cover today the concept of student debt in this equation. I think you got to just get it paid off too, like everything else. Uh, some would argue that student debt it has a kind of a unique classification. It's not expungeable in bankruptcy. It also uh, it can potentially be partially tax deductible for some of the interest and so forth. And depending on your income levels, it may be deferrable. And since it's an investment in future earnings, you know why are you hamstringing your earnings necessarily? But I'm going to look at it and say it's still debt. 
I paid mine off. The easy is get it gone. Right. So the wealth snowball. I want you to take the idea here, but the wealth snowball really works best around passive income streams, but it does work in stocks too. This is the interesting thing. It does. It works in the stock market or mutual funds and so forth. Um, So in the stock market, it's really pretty simple. When you have capital that you get a return on, and this is not growth in stocks, but like a dividend distribution, they have something called a DRIP program, right? Dividend reinvestment program. Oh, there you go. Okay, Uh, But what the idea is, take the dividend when it gets paid out and use it to buy more. Right. And so in essence, you're accumulating additional shares as you get shareholder distributions. Now, you will likely have to pay some tax on that if it's not inside of a tax deferred wrapper, like a retirement plan or like an IRA, some kind of insurance program. Okay. so but but that is a way that you essentially reinvest your gains back into what's going so that it can compound and grow more. And if you're not sure about that, ask your financial advisor, because that's a setting that a lot of us have to program. Right. So the other one is about what to do with uh, passive income streams. And this is a this is a fascinating one. But as I look at my clock, so is it time? Should we do we have to take another? I think we have to take another. Okay, break. so let's do this. We'll take this break, and when we come back, my favorite part of the wealth snowball. But you know, first, more obscene profits from these fantastic sponsors. <laughs> hey, we pay for those. <laughs> They're yeah, they never mind. All right, we'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. Thank Katie Shuck. Yeah, true wealth on News Radio twelve forty. Thank you again. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. (laughs) I didn't even think of anything funny. I just started laughing because you said to think of something funny. And I was like, really, David? And then I started chuckling. I'm really that easy. That's so so sad. Note to self. He doesn't even have to, like, tell me a joke. I'll just start laughing because he told me to. Awesome. Smile in your voice. (laughs) Hey, gang, thanks. Because nobody can see behind the mask. (laughs) Thank you for sticking with us here. We're going to talk briefly about the wealth snowball. And then uh, who wants to know about Bitcoin? Raise your hand. Not if you're driving. Okay, me, maybe me, maybe me. one hand. Right. Okay, but not the rest. So we're going to talk about passive income streams because that's part of the wealth snowball. But so by the, the wealth way, snowball, yeah. I wanted to say if you are now putting 15% away for retirement in your like workplace retirement plan or anything like that, when you're not driving, give yourself a pat on the back because you're doing the things you're supposed to be doing to grow your wealth. So like, I just want to say I'm proud of you. Sometimes we all individually need like a little pat on the back for doing Aww. the right thing. Aw. Okay, good job. A little air high so, five. All right. Yep, right on. Okay. So. Passive and, and, income and frankly, she's uh, right, because guess what? A bunch of people, they are not doing that. Just saying. Right. You so, get the little good job sticker, right? I good know. job sticker. Here you go. Scratch and sniff. <laughs> so what we're going to be, so the, so the debt snowball we talked about, the wealth snowball is like twisting it inside out. And this is the idea of getting passive assets and it mostly works in the rental environment. So oh. here's the fun one, okay? Uh, a rental property. Now, these are tricky because you, I'm not suggesting, and you can do this, right? But I'm not really suggesting the, as a planner, I think that you want to do this with a fair amount of stability. Some people will go out there and tell you, and they're not financial professionals, you know, they're, they're selling their system. 
right? Oh, yeah. I've oh, heard a couple of those the real that are interesting. system. Okay. And uh. I'm just going to go, oh, okay. Look, the reality is that uh, we need a place to live. Right. And at different phases of life, folks are growing through this. And so here's my sort of subtle jab at the idea that you can't just make a job a living wage job by declaring it, right? It's like not Congress doesn't have a magic wand where they can change the laws of economics and be like, poof, flipping burgers at McDonald's is a living wage job. It won't work. Okay. Even if you change it, it won't work. Now, statistically, it's like, well, it'll dislocate things. It's like, oh, yeah, for a little while, it'll force some companies to pay more and other companies to shut down and it'll, you know, it'll dislocate stuff. But ultimately, when everything settles, right, it's like if I take a jar full of sand and shake it, the water gets cloudy. And then a little while later, it starts to, you know, settle Settle down. Yeah. And so that's how economics works. You can shake it up. And for a little while, it's hard to see what's going on because murky. But ultimately, it you know shakes back out. You can't make value out of something that's not valuable, right? Because that's not how supply and demand works, right? Okay, so oh well, we just made it more expensive. Okay, well then everything else in that supply chain becomes more going to change, right? You know, and that's going those input variables will all adjust, and the output variables will then all change, right? right. So that's how math works. Well, with real estate. When you're getting started, oftentimes you don't have the money to go out and buy your own place yet, so you rent. Or there may be lots of reasons to rent. You're new to the area, yes. Yeah, new to the area, want to feel it out. Maybe you're um, not going to stay long term. And that that happens for lots of reasons. So uh, people rent. And landlords will rent to the people right so this <laughs> that's is, their job I there's a fancy concept for you i got it now rental is weird right now because there's a bunch of government intervention in terms of oh uh, like the moratorium moratoriums on, yeah. and eviction okay. moratoriums and so forth and again i will say you put that sandy jar full of water full of sand and water and jar and yeah, that, Try that again, you know, water in the jar with the sand and shake it all up. Sand and shake it up. It's going to be real murky. It's like the hokey pokey. But I will tell you that telling people you don't have to pay rent or telling landlords they don't get rent doesn't solve anything economically. It just shifts the problem somewhere else. Right. Okay. And so like, oh, okay, the people couldn't pay their rent. Good. We'll make it the landlord's problem. What if the landlord can't pay the bank now then the bank can't foreclose and the bank has to shift everything it's now it's the bank's problem and it's like well i don't care about a bank it's faceless and evil so okay but they the bank will then price it into their other products and it will come back to us right Right. so we will all pay for it one way or the other it's just going to take a while for the sand and by the way if you haven't seen it go look at a current bank statement because uh i've noticed lately that all the nsf fee schedules have risen about 12 dollars each not that I have any NSFs, I don't. But it was very interesting that I got a letter in the mail, and it's like, oh, it went from thirty-five to forty-eight, right? So it went right. up thirteen dollars. So, so see, the banks expensive. are shifting things already. Yes. So if we consider how this uh, system works, the landlord in a normal functioning system where the government's not uh, over intervening, and Oregon's weird because you know it has rent caps in terms of the percentage increase per year and so forth that you can do. But but let's just talk conceptually about what goes on. You save up some money and you put let's say fifty percent down on a rental property. Okay. Then the tenant that rents from you should be paying enough in rent that it is more than the cost of the, of mortgage. the mortgage on that rental. Right. So they are helping you pay for the asset. Right. Now, if you're already saving in other categories, you can help pay for it too. And the goal would be pay off the rental as quickly as possible. The right. first one is the hardest. Yeah. Because once it's paid for, 
all that income that is coming in in terms of rent now is available to use yeah, elsewhere. It, it, it could be elsewhere. spent elsewhere. And so if you're trying to develop a passive income that replaces your job, then you use it to buy another, an, rental. another rental. So you save it up and then you go out and buy another one and you, you, know, you put your- Now you have your income, to 50% your tenant's down. income, plus the other rental's income. Right. So you have three incomes paying it off and now three times paying, as fast. You take the rent from the first one and the second one and apply them both to the second one. You'll pay it off faster. Right. And then you rinse and repeat. And the snowball is you get these more rental and more properties, properties that are then capable of collecting all the rent and buying new properties. Right. Now, there's a really good reason you do this tax-wise. And I'm going to share it with everybody. And then you can be like, what? Uh, a lot of folks don't understand tax very well. I know the reason. I can't advise for taxes. That's not what we do professionally, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. Okay. This is <laughs> for those not, of you who know that commercial. This is not advice on the radio. This is just going to tell you how the system works. And what I will tell you is when you buy a rental property and it's not your residence, that rental property has a lifespan. And the IRS says that you may depreciate the value of that property over its lifespan. Right. And each year you'll get an expense to write off and offset your income. income. Right. Okay. So if you had rental income of $10,000 and you had depreciation expenses of $5,000, you will have only realized $5,000 $5, or half of that annual rent as income. income. So now you're paying income tax on half of it. There you go. The other half has been offset and converted through depreciation into the property. Right. Your property is now worth less on paper to the IRS than what you paid for it because right. it's expensing itself. It's away. not the market value of right. the property. It's, not the it's the depreciated value, value of the it's property. Those if, are not the same thing. But but so if you paid a hundred thousand dollars for a property and then you had a five thousand dollar depreciation, the IRS would say it's not like you bought it for a hundred thousand, it's like you bought it for ninety-five thousand now. Right. So if I sold it tomorrow for a hundred I'd still show profits. Oh, I originally bought it for 100 and sold it for 100. No profit, right? No, because no. you depreciated my it. My depreciation lowered my purchase price. It's called basis. So that's actually the gotcha a little bit, right? Like that, it's that, that is, is the, the gotcha. gotcha because you can depreciate the property, but when you go to yeah. sell it, you have to recapture the depreciation. You do. You recapture so the depreciation, but what happens is right now when you recapture depreciation, what you're really doing is you're getting a gain on the value of your property. It's different than income. Right. A capital gain so far is taxed typically at a lower rate than income taxes. Right. So if you're in a higher income tax bracket and you convert that money through capital gains offsets. You end up paying less you, taxes you overall. You lower your tax bracket over the lifespan. So you pay less tax as you go in the rental property and when you go to sell it, you pay less tax when you sell. So there's it's what we call a tax arbitrage. That's why the the wealth snowball is a clever process. Now, legislatively, this can all get blown up, right? The True. Biden administration is currently discussing making long-term capital gains the same as ordinary income. Ugh. If they do, this whole idea goes away. That would be interesting because there has right? to be because a lot now, of you're basically senators saying, and congressmen even that if you have... depreciate it, you're depreciating it against your income, and then later on when you sell it, it's going to be taxed like income anyway. So we may call it a gains tax, but it functions like an income tax. So now you have to figure out if you can change your tax bracket. It gets way more complicated. Right. So, But they have to change odds, it first. Odds are it makes rental and real estate property 
it, it damages the value. Right. There's a really if if they make capital gains the same, it should lower the property values. Okay, so that's a, that's an interesting. So pay attention, of, folks, as you're thinking about your investments. Yeah. So there is your your basic passive income wealth snowball concept built around, um, like real estate. You could in theory right. you could do it with you know buying businesses or buying anything that spins off income. But right. the most common is real estate. So there you go. So it's not always about stocks on this show. Right? I was just going to say like we talk about holistic financial investing, right. and I think that it's important to, to element to diversification is you want to consider lots of different things. So when we build. That are financial, not dependent upon each yeah, other. Financial plans include these elements in the strategy. So anyway, all right, let's do this. Let's grab a break so that we're not like behind the power curve on them. All right. And oh, did they? The grab Sleep a break. The that's wheel. the hit the hit the music part, right? Still is a live show. Still not gonna do it, huh? Yep. Somebody's Bueller. smoke break. I don't Bueller. know how that worked. <laughs> All right. Well, well when we get back, what we, are we talking about? Well, I wanted to talk about this Bitcoin thing and then a fun one, which, you know what? I don't want to talk about Bitcoin. Uh, we'll skip Bitcoin. Let's talk about short squeeze. But yes, there's the music. And so. we're not talking about orange juice. All right. Maybe we'll talk about Bitcoin, too. We'll see how much time we've got. But stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. Got True Wealth on News Radio 1240. KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Dave Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. And we have been talking about all kinds of fun. And guess what? No more breaks. We're just going to take this home stretch and get there. So as we are, we, you know, we've covered some ground today. The last thing I want to talk about is something that it's in the news. If you're listening to any of the financial programs out there, you're going to hear about GameStop. GameStop? What's GameStop? It's a stock. I don't actually know a ton about it. It's well, as, wait, as but GameStop is like they sell video games, don't yes. they? It's like it's a, a is store, it a chain? It's a chain that sells video games. I so did not know that. I know there's one here in town. So somehow or other, GameStop has gotten on the radar of Reddit, and I don't know if this is millennials and Robinhood or whatever, but this has become a trading oh, phenomenon. It's like Tesla uh, with no, video it games. Makes Tesla look tame. What? Oh yeah. GameStop right now is um, went bananas. So I want to I'm going to try to pull up the stock live for a second real quickly. Let me see here. Uh, it's but GameStop sells video games, as far as I'm aware, like yep. video game consoles. Number one and trending stock on Yahoo Finance, by the way. I mean, top of the list here. And GameStop has been if if so if we look five days ago, GameStop was forty dollars a share, and if we look one month ago. GameStop was Stop. at was it about nineteen dollars a share at the end of the year, December 29th, nineteen dollars a so share. So it went from nineteen to forty. Nineteen to forty. It is currently trading at hundred and forty eight dollars a share. What? And the aftermarket trade is up another forty seven percent. It's slated to open at two hundred and sixteen dollars a share. And it was on January thirteenth. It was thirty three dollars. That's like five hundred percent. Right on January twelfth, it was twenty dollars, and now it's up to almost two hundred and twenty dollars. That's insane. It is insane. So here's the really interesting thing. Today, the number of shares traded was a hundred and sixty million six hundred eight thousand eight hundred forty two shares. 
That sounds like a lot. Okay. The market cap on this thing is a little over $10 billion. Uh, when, when I did the math and looked, so average volume is 21,500,000 shares is, is a day. So the volume is also massive. Right. Analysts estimate a 20-year target. This is just Yahoo Finance, if you want to check out, of $12. <laughs> and the uh, current earnings per share is negative $4.22 a share. The earnings are negative? The day's price range was $80 to $150. For the year, it was as low as $2.57. And tomorrow, it's looking like it's going to open it. It's up to now, I'm watching, it's at $2.18. Oh, my so, gosh. What the heck's going on? I think, as, as the math, it, it appears that there's only about 70 million shares available to trade. So how did it trade like 100 and something million shares? Well, let's math that out. What's the average holding period when there's 70 million shares in existence and we trade 160 million shares in a day? Oh, like two seconds? <laughs> yeah. This thing has gone bananas. Like they bought it and turned and around so, and sold it an hour later? Yeah. Yeah. Or less. Or, or less. Minutes, or like or minutes. Two. Yeah. They're you like, know, hey. You this know? has become a day trader's paradise. And if you were to look at, here's the crazy thing about this. If you were to look to buy options on this. Um, just trying to get an option for uh, the ability. Options have gone up 100% today. Uh, let's see. And options are the ability to, you know, buy it or sell it at a different price. And you, oh, you pay yeah. I mean, a premium to do that. $148 option with a, you know, to, to buy it. They're, the option prices are way out of whack. So essentially what's going on is what is called a short squeeze. Okay. And what does okay. that mean? A short squeeze is when you have people that borrow the stock and sell it before they bought it. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So, hey, I... Now, is that buying on margin? Well, that's how you do it. You have to use a margin account to, to use borrowed stock. And then, so I think the stock's going to go down in price. I borrow shares and I sell them. And then I have to buy them back at a Cheaper. lower price to, to return the shares. Yeah, but if it goes up, I'm screwed. Well, that's what happens with a short squeeze is if it starts going up, then what happens is I have to cover my position. If it goes too high, I can't stay out of the stock because my margin, the borrowed money, isn't enough to cover my bet, if you will. And so I will be forced to sell or to buy the stock back higher than I... Borrowed originally it borrowed it for oh and when i do that my sell pressure well I, I was a buyer at a lower price right but now i have to buy at a higher price and all of a sudden it increases the demand because the people in trouble have to buy it and so the people that know don't want to sell it and they have to buy it too so the price starts going up like crazy yeah because of scarcity Yes, there's not enough shares. And so a short squeeze is when all of the people that borrowed the stock and sold it before they owned it are forced to pile back into the stock because of margin calls where they're saying, you need to put more money up to cover your loan. Uh... And then when they buy, it increases the demand and the supply and demand imbalance gets more exaggerated and it drives it up even further. Oh, that sounds like playing with fire. Oh, it's big time playing with fire. It's it's what's happened to most of the people in Tesla also. Lots of people that thought this can't keep going, and they borrowed the stock and sold it short, and then it went up, and eventually they said, I can't take the pain anymore, and they buy it back at a loss, and now there's more demand. Oh, man. 
Okay. So one of the things that you can look for in an individual stock, and and professional money managers look at this all the time, is something called the short interest. And it's not available all over the place. Uh, if, if you look, there, there's a couple cool ones. This is not a recommendation, by the way, but there's a free resource called Finviz, F-I-N-V-I-Z. Doesn't Viz work for mutual funds, right? But it does work for individual stocks. And so you can go there and you can see things like the percent short. Okay, so if we look at GameStock at Finviz, and I'm looking at it right now, then I can go down and tell you the short float is 50.65 million shares floated, 65.2 million shares outstanding, 140% short. The short ratio is three point three, so there's more people shorting this than people buying it. So that's the problem. Is this is this but that means it's too short, and there's not enough shares to yeah. actually buy. Yeah, it's up 275 percent for the week, 619 percent for the month, and 886 oh. percent for the quarter for the year. 3,357 percent, and this is entirely because of market mechanics driving something bananas. Be careful if it sounds too good, folks. Don't right. get caught up in yeah. the hype. So now's not the time. I can't make recommendations, right? So I'm not going to say you should buy or sell, but I'm going to tell you is this stock, I've used this term before with others, but it sure looks radioactive to me. This behavior is not typical. It's danger. Danger. Yeah, so when, and here's the rule on investing that you can think about. If you can't understand it Maybe and you're you buying it, it, that's speculating, not investing. Right. Okay. So that's the idea is you'd be speculating on GameStop right now. Uh, game stop. stop. Uh, yeah, stop. If you want to go look at it, you can go to like go to any financial place on the internet. You can use a free tool and go put in the ticker symbol, and it's the letters G is in golf, M is in Mike, E is in Echo. Right, so G M E. It's like game or, without the yeah, A. Yeah, that's exactly. Take A out of game and go look it up. It's nuts. Okay, uh, and I will say this is the kind of stuff that we do when we manage client money for them. You know, we don't just farm everything out. We look at the stocks a lot of the time because we'd rather buy the stocks than have somebody else buy it for us, and then we get blamed for it. Right. So that's how we roll. <laughs> we get blamed for our own purchases. No, I'm exactly. Just <laughs> I, I'll just own the blame myself. So look, uh, if you found any of this useful or need additional information as an investor, do not hesitate to reach us. How do they find us, Katie? They can give us a call, 541-375-0898. You can... Zero yeah. eight nine eight. Let's yep. try that one again. You can reach out to info at littlejohnfs.com. Check out our website, littlejohnfs.com, or reach out on social. All right, gang. So that's it. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. This has been Dave Littlejohn. And Katie Shea.